Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Channel. We're heard in over 60 countries around the world. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. Thanks for your calls and your emails and visits to the website. We really appreciate it. We also appreciate you listening to the show and uh, keep sending in your comments and recommendations for interviews So, because um, we take a lot of notice of them. So please keep them coming in. This show is primarily about entrepreneurs. We're trying to provide you with information that can assist you to become a lot more successful. And the best way to do that is to avoid making the mistakes that people before you have made. So we try to give you that information so you can learn from them and not duplicate their mistakes. Now, I'm working with um, a client on crowdfunding. And as part of the process, I consulted Joseph Holm who is the principal of Crowdster, crowdfunding.biz, and tubestart.com. Joseph Holm knows all about crowdfunding, and his advice is critical if you want to get crowdfunding success. And uh, Joseph says that um, crowdfunding is becoming ubiquitous and success stories like the coolest cooler, Pebble, or in an hour of code for every student. Very impressively demonstrate how this new wave of funding for startups, creative ideas and causes via the crowd can be used to turn dreams into reality. It really is a huge boost for entrepreneurs. And undoubtedly the most successful crowdfunding campaign of all time, Star Citizen, has raised over $88 million dollars and uh, shows no sign of slowing down. So this is an opportunity for anybody who has a great idea um, to raise funds. But as I'm about to demonstrate, it is not easy. What crowdfunding's done is democratise the access to capital. And with all of the um, encouraging news stories, who wouldn't? Who, you know, who wouldn't want? to launch a crowdfunding campaign today to fund the next big thing that the world's been waiting for. You know, there's millions of ideas out there and usually the problem is access to capital. Well, this makes access to capital easy. So, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely worth a go. Of course, the flip side is that for every successful Kickstarter campaign, two fail. So only one in three succeed. And in the case of Indiegogo, it gets worse. Only one in 10 Indiegogo campaigns fail to reach their goal. Uh, I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs who of the impression that just about everything put, that's put up on crowdfunding sites gets funded. Well, that ain't true. So we're down around the 30% and less and the biggest difference between Kickstarter and Indiegogo is that Indiegogo will allow you to raise money for virtually anything at all, while Kickstarter is much more restrictive when it comes to um, funding models offered and types of projects it accepts. Kickstarter's single funding model is all or nothing, which means campaigns that don't meet or exceed their goal don't get any money. Many of the other sites allow you to keep whatever you get, no matter what it is. So the uh, Kickstarter campaign of all or nothing, um, it seems to attract higher quality campaigns and Indiegogo's keep whatever you get um, for whatever you want model. Other curated platforms like um, Possible and Film and Video Focus, you know, Tube, Tube Start is um, basically film and video and uh, it achieves higher success rates as well. 
So what the media doesn't cover is how much work actually goes into running a successful crowdfunding campaign and how crucial the pre-launch preparations are. You know, you might think you've got the greatest product in the world. In fact, you might have the greatest product in the world. But if you stick it up on Kickstarter or Indiegogo and expect to get flooded with money, it just ain't going to happen. So um, often a false sense is created suggesting that, you know, just choosing the platform's all that it takes. But um, it doesn't happen. A lot of crowdfunders worry about which is the best platform to choose. Um, but in reality, there's a hell of a lot more important decisions to be made than which platform you should use. Another thing that people don't realise is that um, on average, nine out of ten contributions to your crowdfunding campaign will come from your own efforts. So you want to raise a million dollars, you better be prepared to bring in 900000 from your own efforts. Now, the rest is traffic from the platform to your campaign, pa- campaign page, which usually only makes up about 10%. So the other 90% needs to come from a very carefully planned and executed plan of action on your part, regardless of what platform you use or how good your product is. So think of your project as a satellite and your crowdfunding campaign as the rocket that will take your satellite to where it needs to go so that it can do its job. Now, before you press that launch button to ignite tons of liquid nitrogen to shoot your satellite into orbit, you want to carefully plan and test in advance so that the trajectory of your rocket and all other intricate details are in place, allowing your um, satellite to be successfully transported. You only have one shot. If you burn the fuel and your rocket misses the target and the satellite isn't deployed, you're done. And the number one reason that crowdfunder campaigns fail is that it's pretty much impossible to make improvements or compensate for lack of preparation once your campaign is launched. You don't have enough time and it all happens too quickly. You just don't have enough time to get it together. So success in crowdfunding is in preparation. You have to have it all prepared before you launch. So don't let excitement get the better of you and don't launch before you're ready or you'll miss these very important steps along the way to success. So here here are a few things that Joseph says you need to have fully planned out before you launch your campaign. The first one 30% of your funding goal must be guaranteed by friends, family and anyone else that you can come up with to make a financial contribution on the day it launches. So if you're after $500,000, a third of that's about $170,000, you need to have friends and family and whatever ready to put up $170,000 on that first day and if you can do that then you significantly increase your chances of reaching your goal if you can't get friends and family to put in a third you will not succeed secondly you must build an email list you need to compile all the emails of all team members family friends and associates the more emails you have the better Ideally, you need upwards of tens of thousands of email contacts. Now, services like MailChimp that that I use allow you to send out emails and drive traffic to to your campaign page. As soon as it launches, whack, get them all out there. And as you hit weekly milestones, as a rule of thumb, you should have one email contact per $1 funding goal. So if you've got $500,000 you're seeking, you probably should have 500,000 emails. Now, that's pretty tough, but, um, you know, that's the reality. That's what you need. 
So all that needs to be done in preparation. And if you've got a dozen good friends, then you need to get all of their email contacts um, and aggregate them and be ready to send out emails. Um, I think I've got about 16,000 email contacts. So um, with my client, we're after about half a million dollars. So somewhere I need to get another 484,000 email contacts. Thirdly, you've got to build a crowd on social media that's large enough so that you can tap into it, not only for financial support, but also share your campaign with their followers. So Twitter is the most active social network in the crowdfunding sphere. So depending on your funding goal and how many followers you currently have, this process can take months. So tools like CrowdBuilder make it easy to identify and connect with supporters and build a target audience. You also need to use social media gauge to see how much money you can expect to raise from your current social media following. Finally, write a media release and get press coverage to a high-impact media list to make your campaign look attractive to journalists. Don't send your press release or contact individuals before you have reached the 30% funding milestone. Journalists are not interested unless you've already hit 30% very quickly and then they write about um, campaigns in the making. They want to know about successful campaigns, so you've got to... um, You've got to get out there, get that first third quickly. So they're the keys to um, success in crowdfunding. It's daunting. It's hard. Everything's hard. Everything is hard. Um, And it is difficult and it is daunting. But if you prepare and work hard at it, you will achieve it. So um, start working. And give yourself loads and loads of time. That's what you need. You need a good couple of months to prepare to launch your Kickstarter or crowdfunding campaign. Now, good news. At last, schools are scrapping history and geography, which are bloody useless, and replacing them with coding classes. Curriculums are finally beginning to get a shake-up. And... and scrapping history and geography as standalone classes and replacing them with 21st century computer coding. This doesn't mean they're not going to teach um, history and geography. It's just going to be much less emphasis. And students as young as year five will pick up computer coding with students starting to program themselves by year seven. The... uh, you know, the, the push for young kids and students to take up coding and programming, that's been gathering momentum, especially among top tech execs for quite some time. We've spoken about it on this program numerous times. And uh, as I've mentioned, we have teamed up at American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management, where I'm the honorary president. We've teamed up with uh, yes, hashtag yes, we code which is a program that is um, uh, looking to train 100,000 underprivileged youth in high-quality coding roles. So taking 100,000 kids that don't have much chance, teaching them a code, giving them all the skills they need to get a high-quality job. So um, if you're looking to donate some money or looking to donate time, Hashtag yes, we code is the place to go. You know, we're in the technology age, and it's ridiculous that 100% of school children in China can code, while in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, etc., it's more like 5%. Technology education in primary and high schools is going to be one of our biggest failures in 20 years' time if we don't fix it and fix it quick. You know, and it might already be too late if we don't move very fast. We are so far behind. You know, our Asian counterparts and competitors in business and entrepreneurship 
new inventions are um, way, way ahead. And that's a hell of a lot more critical than maths or English to every single new economy. And, you know, in education, it takes a long time for stuff to flow through. So the sooner we start coding and teaching people 21st century technology, the better. We, you know, we need to strengthen science, technology, engineering, math, you know, collectively referred to as the STEM skills, as well as boost the digital skills needed to succeed in a highly competitive tech environment in the 21st century. And we all know that as computer-driven smart technology expands into every aspect of our recreational and working lives, there's an ever-growing need for highly skilled workers in this growth global industry. All our children will need to understand computational thinking and how it can contribute to their future. So we've got to start investing in computer coding against different year levels in schools and STEM education much more broadly to ensure that our youngsters and our nation can grasp the opportunities that are going to be available in the high-tech future. The new curriculum echoes, you know, there's been a lot of successful programs in the United States like Code.org and Hour of Code with the support of people like Google and Microsoft who are doing an unbelievably good job at this and uh, the United Kingdom, which introduced coding in primary schools last year, well, it's time it spread to all the Western countries, which, of course, it isn't. It's estimated that 75% of fast-growing occupations will require STEM skills, which is science, technology, engineering, or math. So we need to do this. I've spoken in over 60 countries around the world, nearly 2,000 presentations, and one trend that is very obvious, it's the focus by conference organisers on topics such as employee health, fitness, nutrition, and general well-being. This makes a hell of a lot of sense because, you know, a, a happy staff... A healthy staff is a happy staff. They take less days off. They have higher morale, more enthusiastic, and therefore the corporation gets much higher productivity. So in any company, having healthy employees is critical. So today, my guest is Samantha Gowing, who's an international wellness expert She's worked around the world for 15 years advising corporations and she speaks at conferences regularly about the importance of keeping their personnel healthy and happy. This is a very, very important subject and I think we all agree, even if we don't adhere to it, that we should eat better, we should exercise more and uh, we should eat much more nutritious food. So I'm very pleased to have this nutritional superstar join us on the program. And uh, I'm Bob Pritchard on Voice America Business Channel, and I'll be back with Samantha Gowing after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. 
Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. You know, over the last four years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 250 of the world's most interesting business people and entertainment people and celebrities but all people that are interesting. We've discussed what they do, how they've done it, what's made them successful, and tried to find out what makes them tick. You know, it is really difficult to create a successful business these days, and we all need all the help we can get. I certainly know that I do, and that's why it's so important for us to have mentors, And we've got to take on board the advice that's provided by successful people. We don't want to make the same mistakes that they've made when it's so easy to to learn from their mistakes. Irrespective of whether you've got a a garage or a um, dry cleaning store or whether you're creating apps, everybody in business faces exactly the same challenges. doesn't matter what the business is. You know, everybody thinks that their product is so fantastic and so unique that um, people are just going to beat a path to their door. But we know that 97, nearly 98% of all businesses fail. And the ideas are usually good. So it's not the ideas that kills them. It's lack of business expertise and it's lack of doing the right things at the right time. You know, most entrepreneurs are experts at what they do, but the majority of them are lousy at business. So that's why it's critical that you follow, observe, and listen to those that have overcome the challenges that we all face. Now, as a speaker, you know, I've been a speaker for a lot of years and I've spoken in more than 60 countries and I've given a couple of thousand speeches. Now, one trend that's been very obvious over the last few years is conference organisers wanting to focus on topics such as employee health and fitness and nutrition and just general well-being. And this, is, this has become very, um, a very distinct trend. And I think it makes a hell of a lot of sense when you think that, well, firstly, I guess they want their employees to be healthy, but secondly... A healthy staff is a happy staff. And if you're a happy staff, you're more enthusiastic. You um, take less days off. You've got a higher morale. Everybody gets along better. And you end up with um, considerably higher productivity. And in any company today in this hyper-competitive market that we're in, increased Productivity makes a huge difference to your bottom line. Today, my guest is Samantha Gowing, who is an international wellness expert. She's worked her way around the world for 15 years, advising corporations, and she speaks at conferences regularly about the importance of keeping personnel healthy and happy. Samantha is renowned for her nutritional wisdom and for being a powerful influencer among healthy lifestyle audiences. And she's also engaged, well, this is a great gig, I tell you, and she's also engaged by luxury hotels and health retreats around the world on nutrition and well-being. At the age of 24, just a chicken, she became a hotelier and a chef hat winning restaurateur before turning her heart and mind to food as medicine. Her first book, The Healing Feeling, I've got it right in front of me here. It's got some interesting stuff in it, a hell of a lot of stuff that I won't eat, of course, but, um, you know, (laughs) I eat a lot more unhealthy food than I probably should, but this is all about healthy stuff. But it's a good little book, and it's got a whole bunch of facts in it. It's, it's, It's well laid out. It's the sort of book that I'd read, but not 
probably not follow. I'd follow it until somebody put something unhealthy in front of me. The first book's called The Healing Feeling. It's 143 pages. It's beautifully designed. It's, it's really well laid out. And uh, it shows her extensive knowledge of nutrition and Chinese medicine. Now, I was fortunate to catch up with this absolutely delightful lady last week for a couple of coffees. That was me. I think she was drinking green tea. Hi, Samantha. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Hey, Bob. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm still That's... drinking green tea. <laughs> <laughs> and you look healthy and fit. It's disgusting. Well, <laughs> it's a great thing to be rude with health. Oh, okay. Um, now, you talk about the rise of the wellpreneur. What do you mean by that? Well, there's been such an entrepreneurial um, explosion, particularly around the luxury hotels and spas and health retreats that I've worked with worldwide, of health practitioners becoming more identified, um, creating a niche within their wellness uh, modalities that they practice. And starting to really understand that to be a health practitioner requires a business system and a whole lot of marketing to actually make it successful. So we call them the wellpreneur, you know, the entrepreneur that's moving in toward the wellness industry. Now, they might not just be health practitioners, they might be developing a nutrition product or having a, a more, um, a, a greater awareness around the healing properties of some of the ingredients that they're creating into their manufactured food product. Is it a fad or is it, you know, are people just doing it because they've been brainwashed into thinking they should or do people actually have changed their attitudes and really wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I want to be well? Do you know what? I think it's such a valid point because I, I've been doing this for 15 years or over 15 years now. So in my eyes, it's certainly not a fad, but, you know, there's certainly the, uh, the great fad of the giant green smoothie that we see worldwide now, particularly across social media. And the socioeconomic status, perhaps, you know, to carry a green smoothie, is it, is it the new Prada, so to speak? But you yeah. know, the other side of the coin, of course, there's a lot of foods out there and a lot of nutrition awareness and certainly a lot of programs that are truly successful, you know. So I think you can take it with a pinch of organic salt, but you can <laughs> certainly put it into great practice as well. Yeah, my, um, my wife's got one of those... Um, bullet things that grinds up everything and makes it into a smoothie and she drinks these green smoothies and tells me how wonderful they taste and to me they just taste disgusting <laughs> so i think well, it depends on fine balance huh <laughs> well she gets me drinking um um we call it that vinegar um apple cider vinegar apple cider vinegar every morning it is disgraceful Horrible. Makes me feel bad until about 11 o'clock, until I can wash it out of my system. With coffee? <laughs> it's supposed to be healthy. God. It's supposed to be healthy. It helps to stimulate your digestive fire, based on our Chinese medicine <laughs> principles. But, uh, you know, if it's not working for you, maybe have some lemon juice in hot water. That always does the trick. <laughs> um, there are more chefs in the market today than there are cars going down the straight in the Indy 500. Every time you turn around, there's a new celebrity chef popping up somewhere. And uh, I read something about in America, of course, there's a thousand channels, but there's something like 400 and something television shows about food and chefs every week. And uh, how, does a, how does a celebrity chef or somebody in the wellness industry carve out a niche for themselves in this burgeoning market? Is it about how good and smooth you are or is it about how flamboyant you are or what's it about? Look, I think there's a multifaceted criteria. I mean, above and beyond, you have to be able to cook. And there's certainly a lot of uh, celebrity chefs out there who, who don't really do that. You know, it's more about the show and particularly uh, if, it's, if they're coming from the wellness industry, they might be done fit and look phenomenal, but can they actually, you know, put a sandwich together? So I think the criteria um, is shifting all the time. I know from my work, I've, I've always cooked. I've been cooking since I was six years old, and because I was studying nutrition, people found that very interesting, that my point of difference as food is medicine coming from a 
former publican um, or licensee of a hotel as a hotelier, as you mentioned, into nutrition has provided a really interesting story. But, you know, you've also got to be able to tell a few jokes too. You've got to have some personality. And uh, there's a few boring chefs out there, I can assure you, Bob. Yeah, I, I find them all boring, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, a lot of them are very ego-driven. But, um, look, I think, you know, there's there's a real niche that's that's surrounding that celebrity chef status. And I've also seen so many people not... Not that they can't cook, but, you know, you have to be able to perform under a, under duress in front of a camera. You have to be able to troubleshoot your dishes, just like Julia Child, if you've ever seen any of her yeah. uh, old old work. It's just fabulous the way she negotiated herself around, you know, that small domestic-style television kitchen way back when. So I think, you know, we look at Nigella, of course, who's phenomenal on yeah. camera, you know, brings back all of that beautiful sassiness to food and... I think what we lose around around food is a disconnect. We've got such a genre of food porn now that, like many other, you know, social media platforms, the food channels are more voyeuristic than actually doing. And I think a return to food and a return to, you know, the sensuous nature of food and to be really kind of hands-on and to really feel the quality of food is certainly what I, I strive to do and to understand the ingredients that I'm working with. I think I heard the words food porn in there. What the hell does that mean? Well, food porn is its a little bit like fashion porn, isn't it? You know, a lot of people have become really voyeuristic around, you know, the Instagram or the social media channels where food is really displayed as something so almost elitist. You know, is it sexy? How's that photograph been taken? You know, who styled the shot? even if it's just for a quick photo, uh, um, Instagram snap. I think that the voyeurism around watching food on television and uh, through various distribution channels has never been so high, you know. There's this real compelling nature around it and the desire for people to eat in, you know, certain chefs' restaurants or hotelier or restaurateurs' restaurants, of course, where they can be seen eating this food or can talk about this food. There's a real switch toward the voyeuristic nature of it rather than just cooking it at home. What's, what's the balance between, from, from your perspective and from a, you know, a global chef's perspective, what's the balance between um, the appearance of the food and the actual ingredients and the way it's cooked? I mean, I go, I go to restaurants. One thing I don't like in restaurants, and I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy, um, I like sort of comfort food, but I can't stand a small piece of something stuck on a one foot high pile of nicely laid out greens or whatever. It's just all too pretentious for me. So where does the where's the balance between trying to be a Picasso and trying to be a chef? Look, yeah. no, that, that you know it's so true, and I think everything really comes down to flavour, doesn't it? You know, it, of course yeah. the food can be visually appealing and we start digesting with our eyes and with our other senses and not just with our taste buds. So you might have a poorly um, a plated steak, for example, but once you cut into that steak and realise how tender it is, maybe it's grass-fed from whatever amazing property it's come from, uh, perhaps it's, you know, Kobe beef, for an example. Once mm. you eat that, then that changes everything. So I think, you know, it's twofold. Yes, visually spectacular food and plating is certainly very valid. And, of course, that radiates with the whole food porn um, affiliation. But it comes down to flavour and it really comes down to produce-driven, you know. I know we talked um, briefly about organic and conventional. It's fine as long as there's flavour and there's texture. You know, I remember one of the great steakhouses in Melbourne a long time ago where all you'd get was that steak on the plate. It was maybe a piece of parsley and that was it. But that steak was phenomenal. So in my book, it's all about the ingredients and the flavour as opposed to how pretty it can look. Yeah, well, what about um, cost of food? I mean, if you go out to a restaurant, um, what's it... Is there a huge difference in cost between um, providing good ingredients or providing the absolute best ingredients that people suggest? I mean, does that justify, 
Do you have to be an elitist snob with lots of money to be able to buy really good, in inverted commas, food? Look, I think if, you know, you're going to certain restaurants, the restaurants have a duty of care, obviously, to keep their their food costs down and to make those dishes affordable. Now, as in New York City... Oh, really? Well, <laughs> one would hope, huh? Yes. I in New York City and I had, you know, a beautiful steak on a plate, you know, very, very basic. The food was terrific. But it was about 75 American dollars. And <laughs> yeah. it, just, it certainly wasn't, you know, up to scratch with some of the other um, protein, you know, the other beef that I've had as an example. So, you know, I feel like we... There are foragers, there are people out there who really find, you know, the most elite ingredients and perhaps, you know, Russian beluga caviar and so forth, just as an example. But does the market really want it? Does, you know, is it about having those finest, finest ingredients so you can charge more? Or what does the market actually want? And I think, you know, that message to market match between... I'm like you, you know, I just love good food. I just want great, honest food. I don't want it to be tricked up. And I don't want to be overcharged for it because I can usually make it at home. So it's a really fine line about where you go to have the latest ingredients. And more importantly, are those latest ingredients something like superfoods, which is, you know, more of a fad than anything, and you're paying a high import price tag just because you're having it in a far-flung destination or it's come from a remote area? Would I be right in saying that you guys are losing the war. I mean, more and more people seem to be eating McDonald's than are buying um, good quality produce. Am I right or am I wrong? Well, I think you're right. I think we've got a great division. You know, there's a great divide. I think we have, again, maybe it's socioeconomically driven, you know. We've got a whole bunch of people still eating fast food because it's convenient and it's cheap and yet locally grown produce or organic produce or, you know, fresh is best, is not always accessible. Perhaps that, that demographic or those people can't actually get to a healthier destination to buy their raw produce. So they default back into um, not just the supermarket chains, but the fast food chains. Yeah, and, and the fast food, yeah. fast food is getting healthier, isn't it? I mean, they are taking out a lot of the crap. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm not saying it's fabulous food, but it's a hell of a lot healthier than it used to well, be. Well, the biggest threat that we face, really, from a nutritional perspective in the work that I do, is the other trans fats. So what has that food been fried in, or how has it been roasted? You know, what are the other oils um, that are used to facilitate the crisp factor? So it's all about texture and it's all about taste. Mm. So one of our greatest threats is that those oils are very, very synthesised. And the cheaper the food the cheaper the oils and the more processed sure. those oils. And once they're heated to a certain degree, then they change their molecular structure and they become very, very toxic. And so that's part of the peril of processed food and fast food. It's not just the ingredients, it's, it's how it's processed. That's right. a great threat to society and you know, humanity as a whole, the fillers, so to speak. Okay. Now you're extremely successful in the luxury spa resort business. I'm not, not sure that I know. It, I'm not sure that I know what the hell that is. Okay. Tell me what is a sure. luxury, a luxury spa, spa resort and business and resort um, industry has really started to thrive in the last 15 years. So, you know, there was always an opportunity for many hotels to offer a day spa where you could have a manicure and a pedicure, man or woman, have all your hair done, or a great facial, but. As the desire for wellness is starting to increase and there are so many other practices out there that are, that are proven, such as acupuncture and uh, various forms of massage and certainly nutrition and a greater awareness around health food, then a lot of the leading hotel brands, including Intercontinental and Four Seasons, both brands which I've worked with globally, start to bring in healthier options. So, for example, they might have a fabulous day spa where their, where their house guests, usually the girls can go while the men play golf, and along those lines, and they might have a small cafe. So I will write that cafe menu or that bar menu or spa menu around the ingredients that are at hand. Or they might have a vertical offering within the business of their room service menu or their main a la carte menus, and so I'll go in there and write um, a specific health-oriented menu that sits, you know, 
sits comfortably with the with the fish and chips. It's not about taking all of those uh, dishes off or the hamburger. It's just about bringing a healthier option. And more and more luxury hotels and retreats worldwide are starting to bring in this uh, this kind of spa menu offering of which um, I've been lucky enough to carve out a great niche from my business perspective to offer that service. That's that's really the pretentious end of the market, isn't it? Yeah, it's a pointy end. Pays the bills. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. This is a show for entrepreneurs and it's about making money and I love that answer. That answer's dead right. Well, now, that's it, you know. It's all about creating, you know, abundance and wealth. I mean, my business is food, health, wealth, so it's about creating wealth as well as, you know, providing a service. I mean... I was in yeah, the hotel business in, in, you know, a long time ago in my 20s, as you mentioned, and uh, I wasn't there just to chop wood, I can assure you. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I agree entirely. Now, more and more companies are focusing on the health and well-being of their staff, and I actually know quite a few companies who bring in chefs every day to ensure that their staff eat correctly, etc. How big a difference in performance can good eating generate? Well... What good eating provides is a solution to stress. Um, you know, even in the restaurant business, we sell solutions to stress. And in my current role, you know, I'm constantly selling solutions to stress. So if that employee is sleeping better, more effectively, they're eating better, they're hopefully up early and maybe they're even exercising of some kind, then their workplace productivity is going to go through the roof. The yep. less stress that they bring on to their own physical bodies, maybe it's their digestion or in Chinese medicine we talk about the kidneys and adrenal stress, then if they can alleviate that through diet and exercise, their mindset is going to be much clearer and their productivity is going to be greater and hopefully that's going to benefit directly to the triple bottom, bottom line. How does, how does food reduce or eliminate stress? So. The stress response is prolific, obviously, within the body. The more um, acidity we have in our diet, as opposed to alkalinity, the more that feeds the stress triggers. So stress kind of thrives on acidic um, energy within the body. Okay, so if we've got a lot of inflammation, for example, we've got backache, leg ache, joints, so forth, and we have foods that contain a lot of acidity, like too much red meat, like too much processed food, lots and lots of grains create an acidic or inflammatory response in the body if they're not tempered with you know, fresh fruit and vegetables. So if we're having too much acidity and not enough alkaline foods, then that triggers the stress response. It keeps creating an inflammatory response, which in turn creates stress because the body has to constantly heal that on a cellular level. So if we just eat steak and chips every day, we get a lot of acidic burn-up, not just about uh, digestive acidity or hyperacidity heartburn. It's more about how that uh, is breaking down in the body. And so if we have lots of dark green leafy vegetables and not just that fashionable kale, then the, alkal <sighs> the alkalinity can help to balance out that acidity. So a more alkaline body helps on a cellular level, helps that, uh, help that person to thrive. What, um, so what... Food foods are um, alkaline that reduce acidity in the body. So the dark green leafy vegetables, in particular, the broccoli, cauliflower, as well, or the brassica casey vegetables. Pretty much a lot of the fruits as well. They contain a lot of enzymes, and the enzymes help to break down. So when we have uh, pure proteins and carbohydrates, that creates an anabolic process in the body. We have too much of that it then gives rise to acidity. So if we can balance that by, you know, fresh juices, um, as I say, the dark green leafy vegetables, tomatoes to a certain extent, depending on what you're having with them, then that helps to break down. So we've constantly got an anabolic response and a catabolic response from a nutritional perspective always occurring. And if we don't have that uh, catabolic response to break everything down, it just creates too much heat and too much acidity. So, you know, even the humble spinach, and certainly one of the most powerful foods, Bob, is watercress. You can forget mm. kale. Watercress is the absolute number one food. So those older watercress. watercress sandwiches you may have had, yeah. Yes. It's like the highest, most powerful alkaline food and one of the most nutrient-dense foods. 
So if we look at food trends and marketing around how to sell food, you know, we've created a kale trend, which <laughs> if there's 100 fruit and, veg- and vegetables that are powerhouses of nutrition, kale sits in the middle, whereas watercress is on top. It's fascinating, isn't it? Oh, kale, kale's the most disgusting food. So <laughs> you keep telling I, me. <laughs> I think... I think you guys must have somebody who walks through paddocks every day and looks for some new strange weed and decides that, ah, this grows everywhere, it's bloody cheap to grow, so why don't we make this a new superfood and we'll pull out all the really good tasting stuff like the Brussels sprouts and all that stuff, we'll get rid of all that and we'll produce all this crap because it's cheap. I'm with you. I totally. Oh, are you? Literally, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I'm certainly not that person that's doing it. But um, it's you know, I've just written a paper called "Who Makes a Superfood Super," and it really comes down to you know, the superfood stakeholders, yeah. uh, market. Oh, it's marketers, absolutely, absolutely, who pitch that. So you know, it's who do we believe? Yeah. Well, I'd never, but being a marketer myself, I'd never believe a marketer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Now, um, going back to the subject we touched on before, I go to my local farmer's market in Calabasas in Los Angeles every week and it's about 50% conventional food. I don't know what the word is, but conventional food and Mm -hmm. about 50% organic food that's always about double the price. Um, My thought is that if you can't trust corporations like Volkswagen not to rig their cars and lie or you can't trust the big financial companies that rule the world because they lie, I'm not going to trust little farmer not to spray a few pesticides around when no one's watching. So is organic really better than than conventionally grown food? Depending on the country that you're in, so, you know, of course, in the States and certainly in Australia, we have um, very, very strict certification levels and those farms are checked regularly. Now, I certainly can't guarantee, as you say, that the farmer's not spraying a bit of, you know, mortine on the uh, food to protect it and to, you know, and to use pesticides. However, all of the organic farmers I've ever met and worked with over the last 15 to 20 years, including winemakers over the last 30 years who've gone into biodynamic um, winemaking, then I, you know, I know from their point of view that they would not use pesticides. It just goes against everything because there's such a great cost to pay for organic certification. And if that's je- jeopardised or if there's trace... Um, a residue of pesticide and that's discovered, then they've completely lost their entire livelihood. Yeah, so you think we can believe... When it says organic, you think there's a good chance we can believe them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, wholeheartedly. But also it's about a lot of that conventional produce that's supplied at the farmer's market, which is usually grown within a 100-mile radius of the farmer's market. I mean, that makes a big difference to buying locally grown seasonal produce than buying out-of-season produce that's imported perhaps from Mexico or up from the Caribbean or from South America to, okay. your, to your lifestyle and how you're living in LA. Every week in the trash magazines and even some respectable magazines, you see all these newest food fads and miracle foods and miracle diets. What percentage of those are actually... Miracle foods and miracle diets. I mean, some of them must work, obviously, because, you know, you find that someone's lost half a tonne because they've, <laughs> you know, using this fantastic new diet. Are, are there these superfoods there, out there? Look, there are, there are foods that have a lot more nutrient density, that are a lot more active. But what we really look at from a scientific perspective is the synergy of food. So if you're having, for example, if you're a gardener and you plant tomato and basil, those two companion plants thrive together. And on a similar style, if we have certain foods and vegetables, uh, fruit and vegetables, meats, whatever, they work in synergy. So it becomes a lot more potent than just having the single origin, so to speak. Now, there are a couple of foods that I absolutely swear by, and one is turmeric which has a powerful antioxidant inside it called, called curcumin, which is synthesized and used in the chemotherapy process to help fight off cancers. 
So, you know, some of these foods individually, we've talked about for years, particularly in Chinese medicine and certainly through the cooking school I've been running, as opposed to having some whiz-bang powder that's coming out of South America or China or some other far-flung destination, depending on where you are, (laughs) that's going to be a cure-all. I think the problem is, Bob, is people are looking for the quick fix and continue to do that. Yeah. It's like trying to make a quick buck in business, isn't it? It doesn't yeah, always work. It doesn't happen, does it? Well, it doesn't happen. You need systems. Yeah, you know? true. And the, thing, the thing about weight loss, which is usually what's sold, is you can't do one without the other. You need to do diet and exercise to, yeah. make, it, to make it stick. You know, you've got to move. And the, be- the best way to lose weight is just keep your mouth shut. That's right. With a bit of gaffer tape or something like that. Just to hold, yeah. hold it closed. Okay, we're... We haven't got much time, but so just a quick bit. I've just left college. I've got my degree in nutrition, and like you, I've now got a master's in Le Cordon Bleu, whatever. Um, how the hell do I become as successful as you? What? Some quick advice for um, a new health yeah. pr- practitioner starting out. Really develop your niche. So what is your niche? What's your point of difference? Who is your market? You could be the most fabulous practitioner and know all your clinical medicine and all of those things, but how are you going to apply that and stand out in the crowd? You know, who is your market and how are you going to sell yourself to develop that? And more importantly, what's your bulletproof marketing system and business system administration behind your business? Because I've mentored so many health practitioners that are on the verge of failing because they haven't thought through the business side of wellness. So now I'm that, telling them their wellness business solutions. Yeah, now, that applies to every business, no matter what you're in, and just emphasises what I said at the, when I introduced mm. Sam originally, that every business has exactly the same challenges, doesn't matter what it is, and uh, so that's great advice. Samantha, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio you. Show. Now, you can learn more about Sam. She is an absolutely delightful person, promise you. And uh, you can learn more about her at foodhealthwealth.com, foodhealthwealth.com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and Voice America Business Network right after this very short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. I must admit that since I did that interview with Samantha, who's very smart, working all over the planet, I haven't really eaten a very healthy meal since, which I'm, <laughs> I should be embarrassed to say that. Um, now, we just love here at the Bob Pritchard Radio Show about, you know, how entrepreneurs think. So I want to tell you a quick story about how an entrepreneur turned his pet food startup into a viral website with more than a million visitors a day. In 2010, Alex Jardinovsky and Joe Spizer started an e-commerce website site called PetFlow, which sold you know, pet foods and treats and supplies. They created the Facebook page back in 2011 with the goal of attracting potential customers who might want to buy pet food. And they shared a ton of animal-related pictures to drive customer interest. They built up a large audience to literally sell pet food between the years of 2010 and 2014. And they realized that while e-commerce is great, they had a lot more fun working on the digital media side. So their audience was women over 35 who loved dogs and cats and pet-related and non-pet-related good feel type of articles. So they started creating more and more content for PetFlow's blog and traffic just took off. In September 2014, they decided to leverage their audience for PetFlow. They spin out the business and start producing a ton of content for their new venture, which they called littlethings.com. 
The site posts adorable videos of animals and other kinds of feel-good, uplifting content. Stories and videos of police officers doing good deeds for citizens, underdog stories, etc. A year and a half ago, the company had one employee. No, sorry, not a year and a half ago. In January 2015, eight months ago, they had one employee. Eight months later, they have 50. They've built a studio to produce more original content. Little Things has been profitable and revenue rich from day one. Little Things Facebook page is now approaching 7 million fans and its website draws between 35 million and 45 million monthly unique visitors. That is phenomenal. Now, um, Facebook's the biggest firehouse of social traffic out there. People talk a lot about diversifying to get more traffic on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest and Snapchat, etc. But in reality, you can have a really hard time finding a network as powerful as Facebook. It's um, just a really massive network that does phenomenally well for feel-good content. So how does Little Things make a name for itself? They focus solely on feel-good content. People know it's a safe environment where they can consume content. Advertisers can buy ads. They don't just curate. They find. They create. They're constantly looking for inspiring, uplifting content that is yet to be discovered. And they're braining them. A million hits a day. Um, Sorry, a million unique visitors a day. Now, we all know Ashton Kutcher from sitcoms and movies, but what we don't know is that he's a highly successful investor. Since 2010, Kutcher's been an investor through his venture capital firm A-Grade Investments. He very wisely invested in Skype in 2009, He's also invested in companies like Uber, Airbnb, Spotify and Casper. Cooch has just got three very simple rules of investing and I suspect these are not much different than those of millions of other investors. Firstly, you must intimately understand both your product and the industry you're in. Great ideas are simply not sufficient. Secondly, You must have a personality that will allow you to withstand failures and setbacks. You know, no matter what you do in the world, there are going to be obstacles and you have to be the person that has the ingenuity and the sheer willpower to get through those times. Thirdly, you've got to get along well with Kucha. He's not willing to make a commitment of millions of dollars and years of being an advisor to someone he doesn't want to hang out with. So... He believes the companies that will ultimately do well are the companies that chase happiness. If you find a way to help people, find love or health or friendship, then dollars will chase you. Now, they're all very sound reasons. I think the three of those are not much different than the view that 90% of investors have out there. And if you're an entrepreneur, you would be very wise to pay attention, I reckon. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter and the radio summary, which is sent out to about 16,000 business executives in 60 countries every month. Subscribe. Simply go to bobpritchard.com and subscribe. And if you're not a member yet of the American Institute for Sales, Marketing and Management and you're serious about improving your skill level, improve your status, and your network as well, you should go and join today. Go along to AISMM.us and have a look at the the advisory board. Have a look at all the facilities and advice that is available. You'll want to join straight away. So thank you for joining us on today's show. We look forward to you joining us again next week. In the meanwhile, remember, if you're not really pushing the envelope, If you're not standing right on the edge, then you're taking up way too much space. Get out of the road. Let somebody who wants to be successful go through. And it's easier and far more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again at the same time next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. 
Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.